Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. 5% might seem too small. Well, not if you're in Hamilton this year. The budget deliberations have been going on around our city council table. And at the end of this month, on the 29th of March to be precise, we are due to have a vote on our budget, on what the increase will be for the Hamilton City budget for the year 2023. Last year, the increase was 2.8%. The year before, 2.1%. This year, as it sits right now, and it still could change, could go up or down, but right now, we are looking at 6.7%. Higher than Toronto, higher than Montreal, higher than many other places. Now, there are reasons, but... Not everybody around the council table is fully on board with this, uh, including my first guest today. He is the councillor for Ward 6, has been for a long time. His name is Tom Jackson, joins me now. Councillor, thank you for the time. Scott, thank you for the opportunity to converse this evening. This is, uh, this is a big number. I don't remember a number this big in Hamilton. Maybe there's been this number at some point somewhere along the way. But um, I know that you and a few others are not really happy about having to vote on this. Scott, you're um, you're absolutely right, and I was just checking some of my archive files uh, since amalgamation, and I think that this will be the uh, first time since amalgamation that I'll be uh, voting against the global budget on March 29th. It's um, just um, it's it's unacceptable for me um, at this time to think of passing along a nearly seven percent increase uh, to the hardworking families my constituents of the East Mountain, coming out of a pandemic, all the rising prices across the board of produce, rent, mortgages, inflation. And um, it's just um, it's, it's just for me unacceptable. And given some of the, tic- the ticket items as well, that um, I'll call it the, um, and I'm very respectful of the new philosophy that's on council, given the fact that two-thirds of them are brand new and I'm only one of six returnees. So I'm very respectful of what I'll call a, a new philosophy on council, but uh, I'm just worried that uh, this tax increase may end up being a harbinger uh, for even future larger tax increases during this term of council. Many of the things, so I, I, my understanding is that roughly 4% of that 6.9 would be things that are out of your control due to inflation, due to whatever costs that just are naturally going to be there, but that leaves you know, two and a half, roughly, percent. Uh, those are things that councillors have added to it. Council-related items are, is the proper name. Where, where did the where did they all come from? Did they all show up at once? Or was the idea that there's money now that we can do this? Where, where did we get these all these extra items coming from? These are council-referred uh, items that probably you're, um, you're mentioning here, uh, Scott, and also a uh, business case of referred items from management as well, that over the last uh, three and a half, four months since the uh, October 24th election have been referred uh, for the budget discussion at this time. And um, that's what we've been uh, dealing with. And uh, we were sitting about uh, four to six weeks ago, we were sitting around 5.4%. And if we had got it under uh, 5%, it may have been a tolerable uh, consideration for me. But um, in light of where we're sitting right now, and given our municipality's uh, ability to pay, our affordability for 
the uh, every uh, the everyday resident and constituent of um, I'll speak for my East Mount community of nearly forty thousand people. Um, it's uh, we're just not as wealthy a community as uh, those to the east and west of us are, like the Halton and Peel regions of Oakville, Burlington, uh, Mississauga, and to the west of us with the Grimsby's and Beamsville's within the Niagara region. So, one example for me, uh, uh, Scott, uh, two examples. One that's a large ticket item, and one that's uh, for me the optics of the uh, of the debate and the de- and the uh, decision. The large ticket item for me is the uh, the master bike lane program. We had uh, last term of council, we had embarked upon a 25 to 30 year plan to eventually phase in uh, cycling lanes across our city, uh, mostly on the main arterials, uh, from coast to coast to coast, and uh, doing it in a graduated manner. Uh, keeping in mind other priorities of basic hard infrastructure, like maintaining our roads and sidewalks and parks and multi-use trails, things that, in my humble opinion, are extremely important uh, to at least my constituents and I think across our city. But instead, uh, this council has decided, pending the March 29th ratification vote, to accelerate that 25- to 30-year plan over about a two- to three-year period. And immediately, it's um, it was decided to hire five new staff, at $660,000 annual operating costs to implement implement the accelerated plan. And when I look at all the priorities, Scott, I just feel that that's, um, that's way, uh, way too expedited a program, and it's um, not being mindful, again, of the overall affordability to pay. Um, on the optics side, the second issue was, look, I respect the fact that a number of my colleagues have stated publicly during the budget debates that they campaigned on greater communication, uh, greater resources to provide that greater communication to their constituents. I'm very respectful of that. Uh, Tom Jackson did not campaign on increasing his office budget. I'm very proud of the work my one full-time, my one part-time staff and myself do pumping out the work to nearly 40,000 residents on the East Mountain. But I didn't campaign on increasing my office budget and Again, uh, the majority by 11 to 4 vote last week, pending ratification, uh, decide to pass along the 16% increase overall. So all that combined, uh, Scott, and leading to a possible nearly 7% increase. And by the way, this Thursday, we're going to have a big discussion on the homelessness and housing strategy as well. That could be earmarked in the neighborhood of 20 to $25 million. And as you probably know, every $9 million is a 1% tax increase. Uh, the 6.7 might still be moving. The needle might still be going upwards. Okay, but many of the things that we are talking about, we only have a minute left here, many of the things that we're talking about are services and things that are going to help some people in the community. That would be the argument to say, well, you know what, why wait, do this now because we can help them. Yes, well, you know what, Scott, again, all those competing priorities, and I and I fully understand the issue regarding housing and homelessness, uh, and encampments, but again, it's against competing priorities and what our citizens and our uh, and the overall tax base can afford in our city. And don't forget, Scott, we've got so next to Toronto, we probably have the the greatest number of social programs within the GTA. I know that a study we did 20 years ago that was initiated by myself with with staff demonstrated that a net number of people requiring social assistance and social programs come down the GTA to Hamilton, uh, causing an additional increase to our tax levy 
and we're a compassionate community. We always will be, but we have those additional pressures as well, Scott. And and I worry that there's an immediacy to uh, where uh, the current council in this first year of the new term is heading. And again, I just worry at the level we're at, it, don't forget now, next year is going to be potentially market value reassessment year. We haven't had a reassessment on taxes and tax assessment since 2016. Ford government could be prepared to bring that in next year. And as well, there's been an initiate discussion about the feasibility and possibility of free transit everywhere. That potentially, hypothetically, could be another $50 million hit on our tax levy. It's just, uh, for me, it's at a level that's unacceptable at this time, especially coming out of the pandemic, Scott. That is Ward 6 Councillor Tom Jackson. Really always appreciate the time. Thank you for this tonight. Thank you very much, Scott. Stay well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. My guest is uh, is a guy that I became aware of, I don't know how many years ago now, when he came out with what I saw was his first documentary. I think there were others before it, but nonetheless, uh, it was called The Perfect Storm, and it was about the Montreal Expos in 1994, the season of the Major League Baseball strike that canceled the season when they probably would have won the World Series. And it was an outstanding documentary. He followed that. There were others on the way, but um, one of the ones later was something one you may have heard of, you may have seen, called The Carter Effect, which was about Vince Carter coming to Toronto as an NBA player and really putting the NBA NBA on the map here, the Raptors on the map here, that debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival and was a, a really big movie. Well, now he is back with a new big movie that is going to be debuting at South by Southwest, which is a really big film festival down in the States. It is called 20, 299 Queen Street West, the, the, the brief write up about it. During the rise of the music video era in the 80s, Canada launched Much Music, a low-budget TV network that revolutionized how the world's biggest stars connected with their fans and influenced the culture for the next three decades. Uh, the man behind that, the director of it, is Sean Menard, who joins us now. Sean, how are you? I'm doing great, Scott. Always always a pleasure. I, I can't do the media circuit without hearing from my hometown boy. Well, uh, no, that's good. And, and, and I got to tell you, when I, when I saw that you were doing this and I saw this was coming out, I thought, I don't know if, I don't think you're even old enough to have been around during the heyday of the much music era. But my goodness, you are going to press every reminiscence button for everyone who grew up in the 80s in the biggest possible way here. <laughs> that's, well, that's why I did it, because I didn't know any of the history. I know Moses Zeimler. I know his name as a street in Toronto. I don't know what he did or what he accomplished. I don't know any of the original VJs. So I I had to get out there and make this thing. So, okay, so if that was the case, because I could certainly understand wanting to do a movie about something that you had watched or had a huge passion for. I mean, Vince Carter obviously was something that you've done before that was close to your heart. Where did the interest come from for this, or the idea or the genesis of this come from to want to be interested in something that meant nothing to you? Well, great question, Scott. Growing up in Hamilton, two older sisters. So I got introduced to much music, elementary school. And then I'm watching it through middle school and high school, formative years of my youth. And when I would sit down and interview these VJs, I would tell them, you guys were essentially babysitters to me. So this is surreal to uh, be sitting down and talking to you. So I was definitely, uh, for at least a decade, I was a fan and viewer of much music. Um, But then obviously as we all grow older in life and we see where we are and how we consume um, 
music and content. There used to be a time where people had to actually tune in to see the music video. I remember it from my youth or putting in a, a VHS tape and hitting record. That was the only way I could see that music video. So for me, it was important to uh, remind people of that era and how groundbreaking this, you know, underfunded station was that came out of 299 Queen Street West in Toronto. And, and it was a big deal. I, this, again, I don't know if this is in the movie. I haven't seen the movie yet. It probably isn't because it's so, you know, obscure. But there was when the Michael Jackson thriller video was going to debut all over the world. I remember Much Music had a countdown clock, like for a day beforehand. And everyone had to gather around because there was no YouTube. There was no, if you wanted to see Thriller, you tuned into Much Music at the appointed hour. And everybody did. Like it was a huge deal for a while there. Yeah, I didn't get a Michael Jackson thriller reference. I did get a new Madonna. Anytime a new Madonna video yep. uh, was happening, people would race home from school and it became a big deal. It was appointment television. And if you missed it, you missed it. You you, you have no idea when you're going to see it again. So there was a real magic to that fleeting moment. Okay, so for someone, though, you were a kid when you were watching this and getting it, but as an adult, your life, you, you've grown up through your teenage years and your adult years in a very different media world where there is YouTube and there are opportunities not to have to do this. Is it, even for someone who saw it as a kid, was it weird to think about how media like this was back in the 80s? Yeah, it was, well, for me, the best part was I never knew what I was going to see next. There was so many different types of music, and especially in that era, there was, you know, rock was changing from punk and heavy metal into grunge and alternative, and hip-hop was starting to enter the mainstream, electronic music was just coming out. So there was, for me as a child, I loved to be able to watch and be exposed to all different types of music and artists in a very visual way. Mm. And that was part of the part that was, um, that really stands out in my mind. And you, you bring up a great point because now you can just go on to Apple music or iTunes or whatever. You can pick exactly the music that you want there. If much music is on those silos get eliminated, you get exposed to an awful lot of different types of music that today you might not. That's a great point. And talking to a lot of the DJs, finding out how the programming, especially in the eighties and the early nineties worked, is, they were given free reign. So it was if they found a local band that they really enjoyed, they would have an opportunity to launch that artist and they play their music video. And then bands like the Tragically Hip or um, Blue Rodeo or uh, Bare Naked Ladies getting their record deal based on playing a song at Speaker's Corner. Yeah, yeah. So you had this explosion of Canadian artists that had an opportunity and it didn't seem like this far off hope in a pipe dream to try and get on MTV. They had their homegrown station that, by the way, had to play 30% CanCon, which was always um, never the floor. There was a ceiling, so they would always play more. So um, it kind of changed that landscape. If, if my last film was The Carter Effect, this film for the music industry is very much the much music effect. So when you sit down and decide to do this and, and uh, you know, well, before I get to, how, how did you eventually decide to do this? What was the impetus that finally made you say, I've got to do this movie? I don't know if there was an impetus other than I recognized the wave of, or the excitement for me to be able to take something from my youth, which was Vince Carter and the Raptors, and to be able to put that on a global stage. That film aired around the world on Netflix. And for me, it was very satisfying to be able to share a piece of Canadian history and, and 
have it resonate with so many people around the world. So it was really, I would love to be able to have tried that again. And uh, so it's been a six year journey to try and make this film. And the most difficult part is obviously getting financing. And it was very similar. Carter Effect, everybody told me no in Canada. All the broadcasters said everyone knows that story. No one's interested. And it took LeBron James and an American company to fund that. This was, I was getting the same type of response that this is just interesting to Canadians and it was a fleeting moment and it, you know, it is what it is, but I saw it as something bigger and something more. So I decided to finally um, really just put up my house <laughs> here in Toronto as collateral. Really? Did you really? I did. I did. Yeah, I'm just starting to feel comfortable telling that now. Unbelievable. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so how, how do you start on this? Like who do you go to first to begin the process? Because I wouldn't even know where you would start to try and go to the first person and say, I want to talk to you about this. Who, 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 how do you get going? The first person I, I sat down and met with and reached out to was Erica M. Oh, yeah. Who was DJ from your uh, teenagehood. Yep. I'm sure you have had a, may or may not have had a crush on her like many other young Might have. I can either confirm or deny, but <laughs> might have. <laughs> so I, 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 she was the first female DJ on the air. She was a receptionist. And then they needed a female, so they threw her right on. And she became the most popular VJ through the 80s. And when I met with her, I told her, Erica, before I started researching this project, I didn't know who you are, who you were. I, I have no idea who you were until recently. Um, so I'm like, that is why this thing needs to be made. Because there is, and there's a plethora of them. Uh, Michael Williams, I had no idea who he was. Um, the list goes on for the ones that were outside of my generation. And they were very groundbreaking, um, incredible journalists. But sometimes in Canada, they get scoffed at because they were appealing to youth culture. And, but in my opinion, and I feel that they deserved more. And people need to kind of put them on more of a pedestal to show that they were really groundbreaking. Well, so I started with Erica. Keep in mind that even before much music, there was the new music on City TV and J.D. Roberts, John Roberts, who became a White House correspondent, was one of the hosts of that. So, you know, you, you learn in the music business, I guess, you, you got to give them some credit. They can do some good interviews. And to be honest with you, and that's something I learned through this film, is that that new music was being done well before MTV. So you're talking about a Toronto station that is doing content with musicians at a time when the only people sitting down and talking to these musicians, the, the Ramones, the Rolling Stones, uh, Sting from the police, the list goes on. The only time they're getting those interviews, uh, you know, on camera was from this station at City TV in Toronto, which is the new music. So they, they really were uh, trailblazers. So when you approach Erica M and then others after that, is the response, uh, yeah, okay, whatever, or is it, oh, I'm really thrilled that someone thinks that we were doing enough of a cool enough thing that it's worth a movie? I would say a combination, but the majority were skeptical. They were skeptical that this will get a big audience, that this will find um, a home and a platform. And off the top of your show, I love that you pointed out where it's airing and debuting. The biggest film festivals in the United States has been able to find this in the <laughs> pile of submissions and give it its world premiere. And, I, and that's really changed the conversation. And, uh, you know, for some reason, we always need the American reassurance pat on the back for, for <laughs> up here in Canada. Um, but yeah, so it was a combination, I, I would say, of, of skeptical 
and others of, of really being supportive and wanting to be a part of it. I'm jumping around a little bit when you talk about South by Southwest would this have caught their eye? You mentioned that this is just a small Canadian outlet, but at the same time, all the people who were being interviewed are world famous stars. So there is star power in this, even though maybe some of the people at South by Southwest may not know Erica M or, you know, or whoever else, they know who the people are who are being interviewed. And that's exactly right. I leaned into the star power and that was something that always had me gravitate towards this story. Although the narrative is really much in the, in, the, in the heartbeat and the people that you're meeting are the VJs, but visually, those VJs just so happen to be sitting down with global icons, the biggest names in music from the 80s, 90s to the early 2000s. So, I, you know, I, I try not to look at something as, oh, this is just a Canadian piece just for a Canadian audience. To me, it was always a global story. It just so happened to take place in Toronto. I, I, as I say, I can't wait to see it. And one of the reasons I did a couple of years ago, I read Christopher Ward's book. I think it was called Is This Live or Are We Live? Something like that. I can't remember now about much music and had him on the show. And one of the things I remember in that book was that there were times that an artist was go, was showing up and they would just pick a VJ and say, oh, you're up, interview them. And, you know, as someone who does this for a living, I, I'm sort of comfortable with that, but still that would be terrifying at times when you've got some huge star and all of a sudden you just walk in and they go, oh, by the way, David Bowie is waiting there. Go talk to him. <laughs> that was the biggest surprise for me when I was interviewing the BJs. I had assumed that they had a plethora of television background and experience. And across the board, it was their first time on television and it was exactly what you're saying, live, huge star, uh, people being able to look in through the window. Yeah, yeah. standing the- behind you watching right over your shoulder, which is something else I don't do here on the radio. I don't have a crowd watching over my shoulder, putting more pressure on you to be cool and smart and good. And that's something that really stands out in the film when you hear their experience and then you're, you're, it's paired with the archives. Um, I've always wanted to tell a story where it's completely visually archives and that's what this film is for two hours so the interviews that you're hearing is exactly that you're hearing them and they're paired underneath two hours of archives to really transport the audience back to this time period what about the archives because they can't possibly maybe they they can but don't this was before all digital they can't possibly have every minute of every hour of every day that they broadcast can they no they don't they what they what they kept and what i discovered was when a big artist was in or uh, one of their shows was, was broadcasting, they, hel- they held on to that. They kept the original beta cam tape. But when, if you watched much music, a lot of it was just the VJs throwing, filling time, throwing to videos. But there was a beauty in that, um, and I wanted to be able to include it in the film. So interestingly enough, a lot of people, viewers from back in the day, would record it on VHS, and I guess because of COVID and people having time on their hands, deciding to uh, transfer these VHS copies onto YouTube. And so that, I I actually embraced that and and we got a lot of VHS tapes and, you know, we're changing the, the, the quality and the medium, but it really brings you back to that essence of that era. What, what, like, where were these tapes kept? Were they, and, and not specifically like an address, but were they kept in a cold vault where they were well-preserved or were some of them in rough shape? No, I mean, it, it varies. Definitely in rough shape. Um, but again, there's a beauty to that. But what I had learned 
was uh, I got a nice tour of the uh, archive facilities last week at 299, and I, I got to meet the wonderful librarians that are helping preserve all this footage. And they told me that 95% of the footage in this film, they digitized from the original Betacam tapes. Now, those tapes eventually, as VHS uh, tapes do as well, they eventually expire. So the fact that there is now mo more momentum, and because of this film, if I'm playing any small role in this, I I'm so pumped that they're actually recognizing the importance of we need to preserve this uh, Canadian culture and history because it's not just something that was meaningful to the people that experienced it, but around the world, this was groundbreaking. Now, I did notice that um, all the movies you've done before, or maybe almost all the movies you've done before, have been about sports, and you always uh, directed with a, you know, a nice clean-cut haircut and short and looking like an athlete, and now you look like you know the, the lead singer of In Excess. Um, <laughs> did, did you grow the hair out just to fit with the, with the feeling of the movie? Was that the point here? Life imitating art, I think, is what happened. I don't know. It was just, it started because of COVID and not being able to get haircuts. And then <laughs> by the time I started this project, I felt I was looking at other people with similar style hair. I was seeing, uh, you know, fellow peers of the era. So I, I decided to just keep it. Yeah, well, uh, look, if you're going to go to a South by Southwest and do a rock dock, um, you know, you may as well look the part as opposed to coming up there and looking all clean shaven and everything. I mean, you got to look like you're a rock star and then, you know, it's working for you right now. It's working for you. This, you know, I, I do wonder, and, and you've put, you've had a bunch of these and especially with the Carter effect at TIFF, because that was a really big festival and a really big deal. Someone, I, I came across on YouTube yesterday, just by coincidence, someone put out, or on Twitter, pardon me, they put out, the, the scene from the movie That Thing You Do, the Tom Hanks movie about the, the, the group The Wonders, the scene where they first hear their song on the radio, and it's just unbridled joy, and it's a great scene. And I wonder for you, when you sit in a huge theater at one of these enormous festivals with all these stars, and it's such a big deal, what is it like watching your own movie in that venue with that kind of moment? Is it similar? Is it just completely out-of-body experience? It is. It's something that throughout the process you're always thinking about because you keep the audience in mind. When I'm sitting there alone editing hours after hours for months, you're always trying to anticipate how an audience or a room full of people will respond and engage with certain scenes and tempo and pacing and uh, songs and all that kind of sort of elements. So it's the biggest payoff for sure is to get that first moment. And I recognize how rare it is in the modern times. Um, and I've, I've been on the other side where it just goes to television and you just have to be on Twitter and see, uh, oh, people are watching, you, you know. So to be able to get that throwback, old school, that's what it's all about, man, as a filmmaker, to get that moment in there with the audience. It's the, it's the, <laughs> it's the big payoff for sure. Have there been screenings yet? Have people seen this, in other words? Not really. I, um, no, to be honest. With so you don't know if the parts that you think are the points that are going to get, you know, a big rise, you have no idea if it does what you think it does yet. I like to think I'm a pro at this where I, I, I can anticipate it, but you really don't know how it hits until that first moment. So when, when I had Carter effect, it was a 2000 seat venue sold out at the princess of Wales uh, behind me was LeBron James my executive producer. Um, 
and Drake was two seats over. He was watching it. So there was, um, there was a real rush of uh, how are these moments going to land. But uh, I like to think, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely nervousness, but I, I feel very confident that it's going to pay off uh, and be a be very enjoyable for the audience. I have no look. I, again, I have no doubt because of what it's going to do for people and the the memories they're going to have. I have no doubt that uh, that that'll work. Now, you have to, I just before I let you go, you said there really hasn't been any viewings yet, so you haven't had um, Steve Anthony or Erica M or. I don't know, Denise Donlin, I'm trying to think of the names. You haven't had them calling up going, man, you got to send me a preview copy. I got to see this movie. Well, some, some of them have sent just their section in the film. Uh, Erica, because I brought her on board early on as a consulting producer, she's watched the film and, um, and? made sure that it was accurate. She loved it. Um, so I, it has been gone that way, but I really wanted the VJs to have that first experience at the eventual Canadian premiere. But this one definitely has a different vibe and energy because this is the first time I've ever had a film screen in America. It's so Canadian and Toronto centric. I don't have the home field advantage (laughs) like I did last time. So um, I'm very much curious and excited for that opportunity. I got to imagine uh, there's going to be a showing at some point with all these VJs together because that that the showing along with the con the uh, the comments that they would have would be worth a ticket. Yeah, so it's um, that that's the goal is the Canadian premiere to be at a certain film festival in Toronto in September. Hopefully, it lands there. Uh, regardless, afterwards, I'm going to take this theatrically coast to coast and um, definitely making a stop for a night in Hamilton uh, somewhere, some venue. Maybe I'll pick your brain. Actually, you know what you should do? You should be the moderator for the Q&A. Well, you know what? Isn't uh, isn't Rick Campanelli from Hamilton? He, He is. And I'll bring out not only Rick, I'll bring out a couple other VJs and we'll make this this great event of the way that people consumed much music back in the day was very communal. And funny you should say that because the only DJ (laughs) dropping their own dime to come to Austin in the most expensive time is Rick Campanelli himself. Um, So it'll be the first time. He hasn't seen a single frame of this movie. He'll be sitting beside me at the premiere next Monday at South by Southwest, and we'll be doing an onstage uh, Q&A after. The movie is called 299 Queen Street West, and if I'm correct, and we got to let Sean go, if I'm correct, uh, at some point in the next year, this will be on Crave, right? In the, This that's, year? That's, that's correct, yes. Yeah. Okay. At some point next year, it'll be streaming on Crave. That is, uh, I can't wait to see it. I think a lot of people who are listening who, as I say, like you know, like your sisters, grew up with much music, will uh, will really be interested in seeing this because you're right. There were a lot of people on there that we grew up with, and it was a huge part of a different life that uh, that we had. Uh, Sean Menard is the uh, filmmaker. He's a Hamilton guy. Sean, listen, always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Oh, I appreciate you taking the time having me on, Scott. That is, uh, as I say, that's Sean Menard. Go look up, uh, go look up the Carter effect. Go look up the Perfect Storm. Uh, you can find all these things um, online on different streaming services. Well worth your time. And then, uh, and then this one at some point, two ninety nine Queen Street West. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us 
Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.